Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan, editor of Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Rob Leinbach and Dave Eskenazi, two industry leaders who are the driving forces behind a new merger between Leinbach's former company, Cadence Living, and Cogier, which Eskenazi leads as CEO. The merger, which they announced last year, is set to create a company with a combined 60 communities totaling 8,000 units in nine states and almost a dozen more projects on the way. For us, it's about playing the long game much more than it is about playing the short game. This is a tough business and we don't get comfortable in this environment. We get busy. And now here's my interview with Rob Leinbach and Dave Eskenazi from Cogier. Rob Leinbach, Dave Eskenazi, thank you so much for joining me on Transform. I know you guys are both no strangers to this podcast. So it's been about a month, I think, since we talked, maybe a little bit more now, about the merger of Cadence Living and Cogier. I know that you guys are still probably working some of the things out, but how have things gone since you first announced that? And I would love to hear a little bit more about the process of kind of merging those two companies together. Uh, I think it's gone great. You know, we, Rob and I worked through the transaction for quite a number of weeks Early in the transaction, we had set a November 1 date for closing. I think because we felt like if we try to close something in the middle of December, it would be, you know, we, we may both get killed by our CFOs, if nothing else. But I think if we could close the transaction far enough before year end, we would have time to organize our thoughts and still be able to manage through the budget season and year end process, but also be able to hit the ground running when it, when it would come to. January, we also had the notion of maybe taking a full year for all aspects of the integration, which would be conveniently set for the 2023 year. So I think the timing uh, was something that both Rob and I talked about uh, along the way. I think uh, we, we did hit our November 1 closing, and we've really gotten a lot done in two months, probably more, more than I would have expected during the two month period that we've we've had from my standpoint, I think it's been quite quite good. I would just add that I, I've been pleasantly surprised with how since Cogier is the acquirer and, and Cadence was the acquiree, right? You never know how the, the rest of the company is going to respond. Um, I've been pleasantly surprised with how the Cadence side employees have all embraced the new organization. They've seen the synergies in terms of the culture. They've seen the synergies in terms of the operations and have really sort of jumped with enthusiasm to what is now the new Cogier entity. Um, And I'm excited at what 2023 will bring from that perspective. I wrote this in my story, the story sort of announcing that this was happening. But can you, for our listeners at home, can you sort of tell us again why why you guys are joining forces as opposed to maybe trying to do things alone in your respective markets. And I know, I know Rob, that there's a, there's an interesting story behind this. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to rehash that, but yeah, again, I guess let's start with the why and then tell me more about how this deal came together. Well, I think from my perspective, there were certain things, you know, that Cadence had accomplished in our short five-year history, but there were certain things that we needed to accomplish going forward. And so we were out at to market looking for recapitalization of the company, and we were looking to add operational expertise at the highest level, so at the CEO level. And we were uh, looking to solidify our geographic footprint, which is the Southern Smile, but we had areas in that Southern Smile that did not have uh, economies of scale, such as the Northwest, such as Northern California. 
And so we were looking to solve those things. And it just so happened that, and David, we'll get to the story uh, for you, Tim, after Dave comments uh, on on the why, but it, it just so happens that all of the things that we were looking for, for what we considered to be Cadence 2.0, that in a combination with Cogir, we could accomplish those things and really create that long-term uh, sustainability uh, that we were looking for. And so, you know, the pieces just happened to, to fit all of the things that, you know, we originally were out looking to do on our own. We were not looking to come together with an organization, but obviously Cozier brought Dave's uh, operational experience, which we were looking for at the CEO level. Uh, the combination brought the Cozier entity out of Canada that had the long-term sustainability model, the, the property management experience, and the balance sheet to take us into the future. And Dave's organization had substantial assets in Washington and Northern California, which are the two areas which we needed to solidify. So it all just came together really nice. Yeah. And from our standpoint, it, it was less about just having, you know, more. Uh, it really wasn't about that. We weren't, we weren't at all looking for an acquisition. What we, what scale can give you a little bit, you know, cause there's this word scale and, and we, talk about you know needing scale it's it's been talked about in this industry sometimes that you either need to be really small or really big but i don't know that i subscribe to that because really big hasn't necessarily been better either i think really small can be okay if you want to own one or two buildings and try to self-manage them or something i do think there's uh, difficulty in this business. It's a very operationally intensive business and it ain't getting any easier. It's very difficult business to operate. When you care about having a management company that's fiscally responsible. Now, when I say that, some management companies are not. Some management companies are there because the companies also own the real estate and they self-manage. And so the management company doesn't necessarily have to be profitable. They can lose all kinds of money as long as they're making money in the building. So they're not necessarily profit motivated or efficiency motivated. They're just there to support the real estate investments that they have. Now, a pure third-party manager can't really operate that way. We're somewhere in between. You know, we have investments in many of the properties that we manage and not at all. But we also have a discipline about ourselves that we think you shouldn't have to choose. We should be fiscally responsible, have a reasonable profit margin at the pro at the property management company level, and also be able to hit our margins as initially intended by the investors at the building level. But to do that, you need to have certain areas that you know you have good leadership in: sales and marketing, compliance and care, memory care expertise. If you're going to have memory care programs, you have to have leaders that lead those things. Those are not inexpensive. Facilities management. You know, we have some buildings that are not brand new. They're a little bit older. And so turning the units and doing remodels and things like that, the internal expertise to be able to do that, nursing, dining, all those things take leadership and really solid people. And those people are expensive. So you have to have a certain amount of scale to be able to get the quality of leadership that you need inside an operating company. We like to run lean, but you have to be responsible as well if you're going to have properly managed buildings, which is what your owners expect of you. And so we were needing some growth, wanting some growth. Also, geographically, 
We were in Washington in Northern California, not so much in Southern California, and there would be other geographical markets that would be interesting to us. Uh, Cadence was in Southern California. They also had operations in Phoenix and in Denver, which were also out West and nice markets that we had been somewhat eyeing. And they had people in these key places, these key areas that I was describing, memory care, compliance, facilities, development team. They had people in those places, and those are people that, and departments, we were about to augment ourselves. So this thing just fit nice for us, as opposed to just any old M&A transaction. It wasn't like that. It was like we were solving a lot of our gaps, it just in a different way than we otherwise would have anyway. Yeah. I know that this all sort of came together as a as a result of you running a little bit late to dinner, Rob. And it's such a cool story. I know that you guys probably mentioned some of what you talked about at that dinner in, in your response just a moment ago. But can you flesh that out? Tell me more about that. I just think it's it's a fun story, that serendipity aspect of it. Yeah, sure. So it was a conference in Los Angeles, and I was speaking on it uh, the following day. And of course, they have the conference dinners uh, the night before. But I had been traveling and got into the the conference hotel late, and um, I was tired, and I wasn't going to go to the dinner. I got a couple of texts for some friends that were attending the dinner and urging me to come. And you know, I kept saying no, no, no. And so finally, with peer pressure, I said, "Okay, fine, I'll come." But I was late. Uh, so I, I showed up at the dinner and there was only one seat left. Everybody else was already there and probably already had eating appetizers. And I sat down uh, and the guy to my right, we started or left. I can't remember. Damn, it was left. I uh, started talking and he, he said he was Dave Eskenazi. And I'm a, a native of Seattle like Dave. And so, of course, I'd, I'd heard his name. And I knew about what he had done at Aegis and Merrill Gardens and which I'm sure happens to him all the time. Uh, my mortgage broker up in Seattle, his last name was Eskenazi, and he's a good friend and a good guy. And I said, you know, are you related to this guy? And Dave's like, no, I get asked that every five minutes, though. And so that sort of started the conversation, and we realized we knew a lot of the same people. And then on his side, he had just heard uh, about Cadence through a transaction uh, potential of an asset that we were selling. And just started to get to know each other, really. And then as that conversation proceeded, Dave was telling me that he was charged with building out an operator for this Canadian property management company called Cogier. And he was, at the time, I think 12 to 20 properties into it and, and, and building out. And his next five years, we're going to be building out a U.S. operator. And I was telling him that I had just finished doing just that. And that, you know, with the uh, capital that had gotten us to where we were at, we were looking at what was going to be 2.0 and how we were going to take that capital out and take the next step on our side. And as, as, as we continued to talk, you know, by the end of the dinner, we both looked at each other and said, you know, we should keep this conversation going. Uh, there's something there. And, and that's how it followed. But that was for my well, side. The funny, thing about, the funny thing about that is it, the conference was in L.A. and it was a particularly cold night. The dinner we were going to was at an outdoor venue, and there was a nice big fireplace there, but it was at the other end of the table, and I was a little bit late, so I end up at the cold side of the table, freezing, which is the reason that that seat was empty in the first place, because those were the last seats to be taken. <laughs> <laughs> I beat Rob there by just a little bit, but we got the cold seats. But the, the bad news about some of these dinners is they can go on a long time. The good news, I suppose, is that it was going on a long time. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground 
in a dinner. And certainly I had not expected to have that kind of a, you know, outcome from a dinner. Yeah. Well, for our listeners, that's, that's your, that's your cue. If you're, if you're uh, wondering whether you should go to the dinner, go to the dinner. So I want, I want to get your take on something. Um, we talked about scale a little bit, and this has actually been on my mind for a few months now. I had a really interesting discussion a little bit ago that I ended up writing about. The discussion was with Aegis Living's Dwayne Clark, and he was essentially telling me that he thinks this year there's going to be what he calls stupid M&A. And to be clear, I don't think that this Cogier cadence transaction falls into that bucket. But since you guys are going through a transaction, I wanted to get your, your take on that. What do you think of the prospects of seeing some stupid M&A this year? And by stupid M&A, I guess I should maybe flush that out. I think what he meant was companies eager to gain scale will sort of rush into combining, joining forces, and then get caught up in all these little details. And then suddenly, at the end of the day, they're actually worse off together than they were apart. Again, not saying that you guys are on that bucket at all, but as you're going through this, what do you what do you make of, of the prospect of stupid M&A this year? And I guess... Uh, do you disagree with that premise at all? I mean, it could happen. There, look, anytime there's pressure on a company, depends on why you're doing an M&A transaction in the first place. In our case, we were looking for something that we thought we were going to find from our own growth, and Rob was doing the same thing. We were just on tracks that happened to be leading roughly to the same place. We got there two completely different ways, and this was simply a obvious detour to where we were going anyway. You could have a different situation where we talked about some of the pressures on the industry. And if, for example, you're you're a company that has some difficulty and some trouble and you feel forced into something because you have to do something, you may find yourself in the middle of a transaction, maybe for all the wrong reasons. There are good transactions and bad transactions. It's not just our industry. You know, there's M&A that happens all the time. We see companies get together and then we see them breaking apart again. You know, Disney's done dozens of transactions over the years. I'm sure they would look back at them and say, in some cases, this was smart. In some cases, not so much. You know, we see that all the time. We didn't do this for synergy. Synergies is one of those words that's used in M&A transactions as code for we can cut the overhead by 30% because we have all this duplication. Wouldn't that be great? Well, if that's the reason you could do a transaction, that is fool's gold. And most of the time, people look back and say, yeah, we didn't really find those synergies. And if we did, it took us five times longer than we ever thought in the first place. Most of the time, M&A transactions are because you believe it's going to make your organization stronger for some reason. If you're forced into something, you may talk yourself into that. Because it's stronger than, I guess, the death nail that you're facing at the time. <laughs> but it is possible that there will be some stupid m and I don't know. And if, there, if, it, if it happens, it may be because there's going to be a lot of pressure on a lot of companies that in this cycle, which we haven't really seen the full end of this cycle yet. We're in the kind of mid, I guess, halftime was the end of the pandemic. That's halftime in this cycle. The other half is still left to be played out. And that could cause some organizations or some transactions to happen in a way that were not conceived to begin with. And so I don't know if I would generalize that all M&A is stupid, and I'm not sure that's what he was saying. But I think he's probably suggesting that there could be some M&A transactions that are kind of force-fed 
because some some companies believe it's their way out or their way in to, to a place that you know they, they wouldn't otherwise be able to get to and and that they may be foolish in thinking that way. Yeah, I want to actually flip that question around, Rob. I want to bring you in, into this discussion. Dave, I think you actually did a great job answering this question, but Rob, I want to hear from you too. You know, okay, we've talked about stupid M&A. Let's flip that around. What does it take to do, let's call it smart M&A? Rob, do you, you have any, any any thoughts? Well, I think the key is what Dave said is that neither of us were going in here looking to cut a deal, right? We were We were both just working on our own in our respective companies and trying to make them stronger. And it was only when we determined mutually that we can get there together that we said, okay, this is something that makes sense instead of doing it ourselves. And that's, that's a very different approach from just trying to get get together to survive. I've, I've been through those. I, I was in a dot com in, you know, the 2000, 2001 timeframe where we uh, merged with another company simply to survive because everybody was dying. And, and that, of course, is not a strategy. That's that's just trying to that's that's a uh, life preserver to try and uh, swim to shore. And that didn't it didn't work here. Dave and I truly believe that you know two plus two is going to equal five here. And what better time, and from my perspective, to strengthen your operator when there aren't really transactions going around. You know, from a pro- at the property level, there's not really with the debt markets moving. There's not a lot you can go do right? In terms of being aggressive in the current market. So why not take that time to pause, sit down, take a deep breath and say, how, how can we get strong so that when those opportunities do come up in the future, that we're ready to go and we are uh, prepared to take advantage of those opportunities, whether that be acquisitions, new developments, or whether it be new management contracts. Um, I, yeah. And I specifically remember Matthew Duguay, the CEO of Cogir up in Canada, saying that it's like this is the perfect time to look inward at the operator and do whatever it takes uh, to get stronger as a manager. And I think we're obviously we're only two months in, but I think both Dave and I can see that what the potential is on the other side once we get through the integration process. Yeah. So you are both industry veterans. I, I don't think I even need to say that if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you you well know that. So I want to get your take on kind of the state of play. We're, we're talking here at the beginning of January. To be exact, it's January 3rd. So I, I want to get your take first on probably what was one of, if not the biggest issue of 2022, which was staffing. Obviously very complicated, obviously no no easy answers. I did hear in the weeks kind of leading up to the end of the year that maybe certain pressures were letting up just a little bit. But again, now that we're in a new year, and maybe Dave, we'll start with you. What's staffing looking like now and how is it trending? Well, it's still a challenge. I think it's getting better. But we we talk a lot about agency staffing. And we had done a pretty good job of minimizing agency, but that's in our markets. You know, all the markets are very different. This is a very localized issue. I think we start hearing about layoffs at organizations like the targets of the world. We do compete for those same people because they're in our price range. We have, another as another year goes by, we have another, I don't know, 23 states that have increased their minimum wages it's states, it's cities, it's counties. We have minimum wage increases all over the country that are very localized. And one of the terms that I'd like to use and we'll be utilizing as we go forward is something I call 
the effective wage, the effective wage. So it's not that agency staffing is always more expensive. You know, when you start getting into overtime, that's expensive too. And so if you're paying $18 an hour and you get into overtime and now you're paying, you know, time and a half for some of those hours, and now you're into the mid twenties and then you go to an agency, but you're also paying your indirect burdens. So what we'll be looking at from a staffing standpoint is we have to have our shifts covered. The thing about having your own employees is no employees care like our own employees care. And part of the thing about agency isn't just financial. It's the fact that these are not your employees and it matters. It really matters on a day-to-day basis to get to know the residents. They develop relationships with each other. And that's that's the sort of the, the big thing. I think it's important that we understand what labor is really costing us on an effective basis. Taking all the dollars and putting in the numerator and all the do- all the hours and putting it in the denominator, wherever those things come from, whether they're your own employees or agency, and seeing what kind of effective wage we're actually paying. Because at the end of the day, when you have so many different kinds of regular time, overtime, outside labor, these things all mesh together, and pretty soon it's hard to even understand what you're paying anymore. But I do think the number of open positions has started to decrease. The number of people that are responding to the open positions is starting to increase. And so we're trending in the right direction. I would not say that that we're out of the woods. What effects is this having on margin? I mean, obviously, I, I don't think any, anyone would be surprised to hear that margins are down across the industry as a result of higher expenses. So I guess, yeah, what, what do margins look like? And maybe it's sort of unique as for you guys as you're a combined company. But also, you know, as you look ahead, when you're focused on margins, what do you think you can do to help elongate them this year? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll, let me let me piggyback on what Dave said about labor. I mean, the good news is we saw our agency use cut in half over the last six months, right? So, so that is a, a positive. At the conference where Dave and I met uh, when I was a panelist, I was kind of you know sort of the Debbie Downer of the conference and a little bit morose when I stated that I I saw no real answers to the labor challenge that we have because. Our just our government policy is just not letting the workers in that we need to have in. Period. I don't see that changing on the horizon, and so to Dave's point, it is going to be a challenge in my opinion going forward. Period. It's how you manage that challenge and how you are able to use other factors, culture, et cetera, to try and be you know the the most attractive in in, in the industry. And we're and and, and we're, we're working through all those things. We have seen even at the regional level, wage inflation still there. Right. Even though there are better candidates, we are seeing that it's still very competitive to try and recruit and bring the, the best people over to your organization. So so those costs are still there. And Dave is sort of the margin expert, you know, so I'm going to defer to him mostly on that. I think from a big picture perspective, obviously, you capture as much as you possibly can, you know, on the on the revenue side through through rents. And then you just try to become as efficient as possible in every aspect of the organization to improve that margin, you know, around the edges because every little point counts uh, right now, and 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 you can slowly build that margin back up to where you know hopefully potentially historical levels. But again, I do think that labor is going to continue to be a, a challenge for this industry going forward. Um, Dave, well, I think margins are going to vary based on where you're operating. You know, you need to pick your zip codes carefully because the cost pressures are are still there. In fact, in our business as an operator, we typically manage right down to the NOI line. 
net operating income, the profit that we can generate in the building. And oftentimes, we, we stop right there and we expect the investor to deal with it from that point forward because they're going to capitalize those transactions however they're going to do that. But like most of our household budgets, when we look at our budgets, the biggest expense we have is our mortgage, right? Well, mortgage rates doubled. If you think about interest rates, most of the new buildings that are built in our industry are on variable rate mortgages. Okay, they're not on fixed rate mortgages, they're on variable rate mortgages. And when mortgages go from three and a half percent to seven percent, that's double. So imagine your household budget having double the mortgage payment all of a sudden. And the income that you're using to pay that mortgage is under margin pressure. That's our NOI. So our investors are not terribly sympathetic to a contracting margin. In fact, they're saying, how can we get more NOI because our you know, investment costs have doubled our mortgage? And that's difficult. This is the kind of this is what I mean by the second half, by the way, of this cycle is the sort of story that hasn't broken yet is just how in the world are these investors going to deal with double the cost of holding the investment with a reduced margin or profits from the operations? This is this is the squeeze that's that's going to happen. But with respect to margins themselves, I have not abandoned the notion that we can still make the same margins. Our goal has always been to see if we can figure out how to get a four in the first digit on our margins. Can we possibly run a building at 40% or higher margins? We've done that for years. It's still possible. And if we miss, then we're hitting the mid-30s. And the way you do that is with significant discipline. We talked about staffing. The two areas of staffing are primarily in the dining department and in the care department. For care, we should make a profit on care, period. We deliver care. We deliver great care. And if we do that, I think residents and families are quite happy to pay for services that are rendered in a a good way. Why wouldn't they be? So if we charge $1,000, we should be able to render those services for less than $1,000. If if we can do that, then for every resident that we have that's on care, we should be making $100 a month or $200 a month or $300 a month or $400 a month, something accretive to the overall profitability. Now, that may drive margins down. Margins in the care department might be 25 to 35%, whereas margins in an independent building may be higher. But the question is, how many NOI dollars per unit can we drive to the bottom line? That's what pays the bills at the end of the day. So it's not so much the margin percentage as much as it is how much NOI per unit can we drive to the bottom line? And if we're going to go through all the brain damage, let's call it, of the regulation and the labor involved in delivering care, we sure as heck better make some sort of a profit in that department. Or what are we doing there? Why don't we just flip to all independent? And so, but on the rest of the building, On the dining department, that's the other side of the coin, where oftentimes we give the dining away as part of the rent. Well, if that's going to be the case, then we better be very diligent about what we're spending in that department relative to what we're charging. If we're charging $10,000 a month for rent, then we better have a pretty darn good, you know, dining program because these people are paying a lot of money. 
if we pay, spend a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars a month on dining, that's ten to fifteen percent of rent. But if we're only charging three thousand dollars in rent, we can't spend a thousand dollars a month in the dining. That's given thirty three percent of the rent away to dining. So it's very relative. But you have to manage the dining department in that way. That's where, again, the, the two departments where all this labor is that we've been talking about is dining and care. So the devil's in the details a management company and how you operate. And we have to we have to double down on our efforts to make these buildings as profitable as we possibly can if we're going to be considered a top-notch operator in the environment that our investors are are in, whether they like it or not. We have a we have a little bit of time left here. I want to talk with you guys about obviously what you're going to be up to this year. I do want to revisit one thing that we talked about a couple months ago, just given that we're in a new year now. I think uh, both of you um, told me that you're bracing for more distress in 2023. No surprise. But can you talk about kind of what you expect to see this year? Um, we just ran an article today about all of the different trends that we expect to see in the new year. So maybe I'll, I'll ask you to contribute to that. But Rob, uh, starting with you, um, you know, what sort of distress do you think is still left for us? Yeah, I think Dave touched on it, right? I mean, I think I think that we haven't really seen the the real meat and potatoes of the fiscal crunch from the debt markets moving. Um, I think you're going to see a, a lot of inability to hit covenants, a, a lot of difficulty in getting NOI up high enough uh, to meet some of those variable interest. Uh, charges. So uh, I think I think that we'll find out, right, whether it's going to be extend and pretend from the banks um, and whether they're going to give everybody the time to get through what has been, you know, somebody told me the other day, think about what the what senior housing has gone through over the last five years. Okay, just start in 2017 and say, okay, we experienced two to three years of overbuilding, right? And then two years of COVID, and now we're in, you know, year one and a half of ridiculous wage inflation. I mean, over 50 percent, if you look at the frontline workers um, in terms of wage inflation. And now you've got, as Dave said, a doubling of interest, basically, it, with the debt markets moving. This one industry has experienced all that in the last five years. And it is going to take some time to work through the system. And whether or not the financial institutions allow for that time is going to be the interesting thing to me in 2023. And both Dave and I believe strongly, which is why we came together, that whoever executes the most efficient at the highest level at the property management side of things is going to um, have opportunities come their way during this time. But but those things are coming. Yeah. Dave, I'm sure you got thoughts to add there, but I want to keep the discussion moving a little bit here. 2023, obviously a big year. I'm sure you have lots on your mind uh, as you work to bring these two companies closer together and as you you know, move forward as a combined company in the future. What, what do you guys have planned? You know, What are some big initiatives we might see out of you this year? And I know that you guys have talked about maybe taking on some more management contracts. So tell me more about just sort of, sort of how, how we might expect to see the company do and grow in 2023. Well, one of the things we were eager to embrace, really, from the Cadence side is their programs. Their programs are exceptional. And we can't forget how you win in business. Apple reminds us that you please the customer. Apple has been able over the years to charge what they need to charge to be able to do that. But above all else, Steve Jobs was very focused on 
making sure the customer has an amazing experience. We cannot forget that. We have to make sure our customer has an amazing experience. Cadence is very good at that with their programs. So we will be rolling out really as soon as possible uh, the memory care programs and some of the in-building programs that Cadence has really done an amazing job with. And we're eager to do that. So when I said we're going to take you know a full year to complete the entire integration, that doesn't mean everything happens in December of 23. <laughs> a lot of things that can happen can be rolled out like these programs. And so I would expect us to do that. That may not be terribly visible from the outside, but it's going to be very visible from the inside. Similarly, with focusing on our memory care program and bringing over some of the great things that Cadence does in their memory program over to our uh, communities as well. We'll be, and again, internally, we'll be taking some of the disciplines and processes around efficient operations over to many of the buildings that Cadence has. And a lot of our, our portfolios are quite different really in their life cycle. They have a lot of new builds, they have lease ups and the age of their buildings is fairly young, so they're still in – they had a lot – they were trying to lease up during COVID. So so we'll call those extended lease-ups because they were difficult lease-ups because of the time period when the buildings are open. And so we'll be doing a lot of that stuff internally that might not show up too much on the outside. I think in terms of new management agreements, there's going to be a lot of movement, I think, in the industry. You know, I think a lot of operators are struggling. Uh, I think that the investment community, as I mentioned, is only going to have so much ability or patience to be able to withstand, you know, operations that aren't operating efficiently. And I, I think there will be some rotation in investors and owners looking for new operators. And so I think what we need to do is continue to establish ourselves as a high quality, efficient operator and then from our standpoint be selective on choosing where we grow through new agreements not just take everything but consider the clustered approach to where, where the markets we're in and having tuck in so we're in Denver with a number of properties tucking in building out that market further with perhaps opportunities that come our way in those markets and the markets that we're already in if we go into a new market, we would want to make sure that that's a market we believe we can be successful in in the long term. I think for us, it's about playing the long game much more than it is about playing the short game. And so I think those opportunities will be available. And I, and I do think this is in a kind of an environment that kind of separates the men from the boys, if you know what I mean, in terms of operators. You know, this is a tough business. And those that thought it wasn't, are waking up to a pretty rough reality. And so we don't get comfortable in this environment. We get busy. That's um, Those are good words to end on. Um, unfortunately, I think we're out of time here. But I, I just want to thank you both for a great discussion. Um, Rob Leinbach, Dave Eskenazi, thank you again for coming on Transform. This was great. I, it, was, it was great having you. Thank you. Appreciate your time. It was great. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to thank Rob Leinbach and Dave Eskenazi with Cogier. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.